Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hello, everyone. Welcome in. We are continuing in the book of Romans as we go through the New Testament. And uh, we've already had some really great episodes, and we are going to have some amazing episodes coming up. Man, this is this is just a fun series. This one's so going to be a great episode, too. I mean, don't short sell tonight. No, it's the time when we get all the other cool people on. That's yeah. when it gets good. Yeah, I know. We really <laughs> uh, don't like each other. So no, I, it, we're, it's part of a community service thing we have we to have, do for well, we have some, yeah. it's, it's court ordered. It's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, my, it's part of my parole. So. <laughs> there you yeah. go. It was only probation I, I for me. For so. this is that a highway cleanup. <laughs> yes. So, I'm like, yeah, all right. <laughs> I'll talk to Vinny once a week. Yeah, I'll, talk to, I'll Zoom with Vinny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. So uh, I let's got my talk. ankle monitor on. I can't walk too far away from the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> man that's that could go a long place yeah. um so let's get into chapter four five six seven eight let's look at some of these issues yeah. uh and, you know cruise through this part of the book which I, I always just feel like we're doing such a disservice to this book but uh it's it's good nonetheless but romans ends let's actually jump real quick to yeah. the very end because that's yeah. going to set up for some of tonight but in chapter 16 verse 20 it ends with this uh phrase that god are soon going to crush satan under your feet and so uh, this immediately pulls us back to genesis 3 language right and imagery yeah yeah and i think that's really important to understand hey this is where romans is going and then understand the Genesis contact and the context and implications of that. Uh, it's going to come up in Galatians also. Uh, what you're looking at, I think, and we, I think we've discussed this before. Certainly, if you've listened to the the Zoom Bible studies that I did and I posted on the Book of Genesis, you've probably heard all this. But I think that everything we see in the Gospels and Paul, and ultimately in the Book of Revelation, is kind of building on this conflict that starts in the book of Genesis. So let me kind of read Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When God's speaking to the serpent, it says in Genesis 3, verse 15, he says, I'm going to put enmity or strife between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Here's this conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And I think if we realize that that is the biblical conflict, it's um, by the way, I'm doing a series of posts right now on my blog post on who is the beast, uh, ultimately, who's the Antichrist, uh, who is what is 666. This is really actually the framework for understanding it. And that is, it's this biblical conflict between the kingdoms of the world and the, and the kingdom of God. So looking at it this way, uh, go to um, Psalms chapter one, verses one through six, or actually Psalm chapter one. Psalm chapter one says, Verse one, how blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But this person's delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. This person will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. And its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does or they do prospers. Ah, now, notice that the imagery of Psalm 1, talking about the righteous who are going to prosper, is actually this imagery of a tree, which takes us back to Eden. In Eden, they're standing before two trees. Which one are you going to choose? Are you going to choose the tree of life or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And what was happening at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was, by the way, notice this, Adam and Eve needed the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. They needed that knowledge because they were told to rule. 
And you can't rule unless you make decisions re related to knowledge of what's good, what's bad. Whether they were going to choose to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil at the behest of the devil or at the behest of God. And right now, the devil's the one saying, hey, you guys do this on your own. You guys make your own decisions. And Eve goes, you know what? It looks good. It, it's good for food. It, it looks good. I, I think we should eat it. And they're ultimately, humanity's making this decision of wisdom for themselves. The book of Psalms opens up, opens up by saying, the wise person is like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. And of course, the streams of water reminds us of Eden and of the river that flows out of Eden. It's the tree of life. And this is the whole idea. The book of Proverbs, of course, goes into great detail on this because the book of Proverbs says, that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Ah, it's the tree of life is to say, I fear the Lord and I decide that he makes the rules. And what you see happening then, if I can put this all in the kind of one kind of big context, that's this. This biblical conflict is between the kingdoms of the world and the kingdoms of God, or the kingdom of God. The kingdoms of the world are ultimately ruled by the devil, Satan, or the serpent in Revelation chapter 12, who empowers the beast in Revelation chapter 13. But that's for another podcast. And what's happening then is in those kingdoms, humanity rules for themselves and they decide for themselves what right and wrong is, what's good and bad. And ultimately in those kingdoms, as I said before, they're built on power and their power is through military might, through force, through stepping on the on the other. It's at, it's at the expense of somebody else, if not a lot of somebody else's. Whereas the kingdom of God Christ comes along and says, well, power in my kingdom is through love, is through sacrifice, is through surrendering oneself for the sake of the other, laying down one's life for the sake of the other. And so the difference between the two is to, is to say that to enter the kingdom of God, one must say Jesus, or not just say, but believe that Jesus is Lord. That's the eat from the tree of life, to say, you are Lord, you know good and bad, you make the decisions, and then we'll go from there. To eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is to say, we're going to make the decisions. And what I think you see happening in human life is the fact that the conflict, the devastation, the destructions, the despair, the famines, the wars, that's what happens when humanity is in power. Now, one last note on this. That's this. Notice that in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says, he tells what I think is the most important parable in the entire scriptures, the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4. And then he adds a couple of parables to that, kind of like addendums. These parables kind of give more detail what the kingdom of God really is like. And the last one, he says, the kingdom of God is like a tree. It branches out and even the birds rest on its branches, which obviously, well, not obviously, but which alludes back to the book of Daniel. So the point of that is that the kingdom of God is like a tree also. So I think you have this big imagery going on uh, in the biblical story. So all of a sudden Paul talks about and says, oh, guess what? We, the church, the people of God, are going to crush the serpent's head. Oh, it's the kingdom of God that comes and destroys the kingdoms of the world. How? Through the work of the church. I think this leads us into the book of Romans and specifically into the argument that we're going to see in Romans chapter 4. Okay. Okay, so we finish the first three chapters of Romans, which chapter 1 is primarily slamming the gentiles chapter two slamming the jews in terms of not being faithful to god and just not living up to his ethic chapter three culminates saying like, everyone has this issue and it's not by uh 
uh, Jewish people, you can't just claim uh, Abraham as the means by which you get in. You know, you, you all have this problem and there's another solution out there. So how does this garden thing that you're talking about, how does this move us into chapter four? Yeah. Uh, let me know, by the way, I've been reviewing Scott McKnight's commentary and we're going to interview Scott McKnight here in a few weeks and have it on the podcast. And he actually has a really interesting take on what, what we've discussed because you kind of uh, gave a synopsis of what we've discussed in Romans chapter yeah. one, two, and three. And I think his, and we'll ask him about this because I think he disagrees a little bit with the consensus saying that Romans one, two, and three are saying that all humanity are okay. condemned because we're all sinners. Romans one, the Gentiles are all sinners. Romans two, the Jews are not any better, even though they have the law, they don't do the law. Uh-oh, what are we going to do? And Jesus comes along and that's the solution. And he puts this in the context of um, the debate between the weak and the strong at the end of the, in Romans chapters 14 and 15. Okay. The weak being Jews who are saying that you Gentiles have to be circumcised to enter the family of God. And the, the strong being you, the Gentiles who are kind of, disowning and, and dissing on the Jews saying, hey, you know, bummer for you. You guys kind of crucified Jesus. You guys are out. Uh, this is now a Gentile mission. And so he, he kind of has this conflict between the two groups. And he frames the discussion in Romans 1, 9, 1 through 11 in light of that dispute. So his commentary, as you are aware, is called mm -hmm. reading Romans backwards. He mm -hmm. says, you need to read Romans 14 and 15, find out what the dispute is, and mm -hmm. then go back and read Romans 1 through 11. And he says, and we're going to ask him about this, that it's not about all humanity as sinners Interesting. and all have fallen. It's it's simply saying, yeah, you, the weak and the strong, you you groups, you're all in the wrong, and this is not any good. Let's move. Let's move forward. So uh, it is kind of interesting there. Oh, so I think what's happening okay. in Romans four is that Paul is continuing uh, this conversation that's been going on, and in chapter three he asked a couple questions. Uh, in chapter three, verse one, uh, Paul asked the question: Then what advantage has the Jew, right? If if the Jews are just as guilty as the Gentiles, then uh oh, what is there any advantage in being the Jew? And he, he says, Well, sure, of course. You know, we you guys were given the oracles of God, you know, the, the scriptures. And he then asked the same question again in verse nine: Are we any better? Are, are we Jews any better? Uh, for uh, all Jews and Greeks are under sin, you know, what's the advantage? And I think that's what's happening in Romans chapter four, verse one. He begins by saying, Well, then what shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? And I think Paul then is simply saying, Hey, God's faithfulness to his promises to Abraham is what constitutes God's faithfulness to his covenant. And the Jews are in that covenant also, as are the Gentiles uh, through faith. So Richard Hayes says in his discussion regarding Romans 4, he says, the crucial issue in this chapter is not how Abraham got justified, but rather whose father he is and in what way his children are related to him. In other words, if the question is, you know, how do, do the Jews have any any um, advantage? And we're saying, well, sure, they have an advantage because you know they got the kingdom and they got the gospel and they got the Torah, they got the scriptures, and Jesus kind of comes through them and faith uh, goes to them first and foremost. Then the question becomes, do the Gentiles have to become Jews in order to inherit the promises? And I think what Paul's going to say in Romans chapter four is, Abraham's the father of all who believe. Now, this is going to be really significant. But before we go into that, let's kind of go back to Genesis 15. So Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 are going to be looking kind of in the background of Romans chapter 4. So let's go to Genesis 15. Do you want to read of any uh, Genesis 15? Let's read verses 2 through 6. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Elazar of Damascus. And Abram said, 
Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So there's this promise, going back to Genesis 12, right, that Abraham is going to be the father of many nations, and the father, uh, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through him. But there's still a problem. He's getting older and older every single day. And the older he gets, the less likely it's going to be that he's going to have any kids. And his wife, Sarah, is still barren, and there, and she's old as well. Uh, now, as we continue on, God offers the promise of land to Abraham. Not only are you going to have all this offspring, but I'm going to give you all this land. And she keep reading. He's going to, I'm going to give you as many descendants as the stars in the sky and as, as the grains of sand on the seashore. So I believe that in Romans chapter 4, Paul's kind of giving an exposition of Genesis 15. And he's demonstrating that the promises to Abraham were, well, in verses 2 through 8, were not conditioned by works. And then in Romans 4, 9 through 12, they were not by circumcision. And then Romans 13 through 15, they were not by Torah or by the law. Now, the key is, is that those things were all things that were Jewish markers, Jewish identification markers that leave the Gentiles out. And this is the big issue for Paul, especially in the book of Galatians. And that is, if it's by faith, or if it's by grace, as he says in Romans uh, 4, if it's by grace and by faith, then it's for anyone. And it doesn't have these markers or um, ethnic boundaries. So Romans 4, 1 says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? Is there debate then on how we would read this? Yeah, Romans 4 1 is very, actually very interesting. So I think that what Paul's asking is something along the lines was like, how or in what way was Abraham our father? So N.T. Wright and Richard Hayes both claim that the verse should be read as like, what then shall we say? Have we found Abraham to be our forefather according to the flesh? Mm. Now, the question is, how did Abraham become our father? Notice that the translations, most of them, let's kind of look at a couple of them. The translations kind of go along the lines of, oh, the book of Romans is about personal salvation. Whereas Paul, and what we've been discussing, what I've, what I've been arguing is, uh, and I think most of the scholars are, are agreeing now, is that the book of Romans is about God's covenant faithfulness. And how does one enter into the covenant? And what does it mean that Jesus Christ has come and been faithful to the covenant and the implications thereof? And I think we're going to get into Romans chapter 8 in our next episode, which is one of the greatest chapters there is in the scriptures. So the question then is, well, how was Abraham our father? In what sense did Abraham come to be our father? But look at the translations. So the New American Standard says, what shall we say that Abraham our father, according to the flesh, has found? Oh, look, uh, look most significantly at the New Living Translation. It says, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of the Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? Hmm. I mean, that translation says this is all about salvation and justification, how did Abraham get justified? And I think the question is, and N.T. Wright and Michael Gorman, and the, uh, I think Scott McNeish probably also going to agree as well, that the question is, how was God faithful to his covenant? And what does that mean for who enters and how we enter into that covenant? Not how does one personally get saved? Is it by grace or by faith or by, or by righteousness? Not to say that that's not part of the equation. That's just simply not the major focus of what Paul's getting at here. 
Hey everyone, thanks again for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it and hopefully it's blessing you. Hey, do us a favor, if this is something that you are digging, if it's helping you, if it's uh, encouraging you, take a second just to like it, give it a review, give it you know, five stars if you think it's five star worthy, uh, share it with your friends. And we just wanna get this out to more people. Uh, this isn't something that we're in for the bucks, but it's something that we wanna encourage and equip people with. So do that, help us out, and now we'll get back to the podcast. All right, so verses two through eight of chapter four now start bringing in the question of works and the basis of works. We we did bring this up in an earlier episode mm-hmm. about what does it mean for works of the law and that the phrase works of the law is not used here, but the word works is. So is, is Paul referring to the same thing? Is he just meaning like any kind of good work? Is it meaning, you know, obeying the 10 commandments? How, how do we understand this here? Yeah, I think so. So verse two, was Abraham justified by works? And if he was, then he has something to boast about. And so, again, I don't think this is to be understood in this traditional sense of, oh, Abraham was justified because he was a nice person. He helped a lady across the street one day. He did these kind kind things. Uh, he was righteous. He was a good person. It's probably talking more about was Abraham justified by works in terms of his Jewishness and the fact that he's a member of God's covenant because he's Jewish. And Paul's answer is, well, if that's the case, then it makes the Jewish people superior and they have something to boast about. Paul then immediately responds by quoting Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness or reckoned as as righteousness. Paul then goes on, verse 4. The one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. This is the first uh, point that Paul wants to make, and that is, if it's by works, he could boast about it? And then secondly, if it's by works or by works of the law, by Jewish identity, whatever it might be, then God would owe him. And Paul's answer is no, it's actually by faith and through Mm -hmm. faith. And again, remember, if we adopt this viewpoint that says it's by being Jewish and not just, again, just to be clear, we're not saying just by being Jewish ethnically, that's all you need, but simply saying by being Jewish, meaning you have the law and you follow the law with circumcision, the food laws, Sabbath keeping, these identity markers, and that makes you in, then it excludes everyone else. Mm-hmm. And Paul's first answer is, well, if that's the case, then you could boast. I did these things, God. You have to let me in. God, you owe me. You know, you knock on heaven's door and say, hey, Lord, let me in because I was circumcised. I followed the food laws. I was practiced the Sabbath keeping and, uh, and the various uh, festivals. So let me in. You, you owe me. And Paul's first answer is, God even says, Genesis 15, verse 6, that Abraham believed God Mm -hmm. and has reckoned him as righteousness. And again, this word righteousness probably means faithfulness to the covenant. But wouldn't the view of Abraham be that he was a virtuous or righteous man because of his faithfulness to doing what God wanted him to do, especially like in demonstrating that he would have uh, sacrificed Isaac? And isn't that the point that Paul's making is like, no, we have to actually back up a few chapters because that happened in what, like chapter 22 or something like that. So it's like, hey, no, let's actually back it up to chapter 15. Right. In fact, it's called the Akadah in in Judaism, the sacrifice or almost sacrifice of uh, Isaac. That's actually never mentioned in this book. Mm -hmm. Paul doesn't even bring it up. The whole point of this, yeah, that's not what makes Abraham righteous. Look, Genesis 15, he's declared righteous long before the Akadah, long before the the attempted sacrifice or almost sacrifice of Isaac. In fact, what we're going to notice in a few minutes, and that is Paul's whole argument is, Oh, by the way, Genesis 17, circumcision. So he was also declared righteous in Genesis 15 
mm-hmm. before Genesis 17 circumcision, but I guess I got ahead of ourselves. So let's go there now. Yeah. Well, so verses nine through 12, then Paul, uh, so we're back in Romans, not in Genesis. Yeah. Uh, so Paul then asks the question of entrance based on the basis of circumcision. So is the blessing upon the circumcision or the uncircumcised also? That's that's verse nine. Yeah. And again, it's the same question, right? The same question of Romans chapter four, verse one. And that is, uh, to whom do the Abrahamic promises belong? Do they apply to those who are circumcised? Well, Paul's kind of already dealt with this in chapter two, that circumcision, basically, uh, it's circumcision of the the heart instead of circumcision of the flesh. And if the Gentile does these things, is he not better off, so to speak? In four, verse three, Paul argued that Abraham believed, though, in Genesis 15, six, we just mentioned, and that was credited to him as righteousness. But God hasn't commanded circumcision yet till Genesis 17. Now, this is going to be really important for us to understand the book of Galatians here. So, so if you're listening in here, pay close attention. So what happens is in Romans 4, verse 11, Paul says, Abraham was saved, if we want to use that language, before he was circumcised. And verse 9 says, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. So what Paul's doing is he's making kind of a chronological argument. Notice he says he received the sign of circumcision which is a sign of the, of the righteousness which he had while uncircumcised, meaning in Genesis 15, he's declared righteous. In Genesis 17, he receives the sign of circumcision. Mm-hmm. Now, this makes really good sense to us, but this issue is going to come back up in the book of Galatians. And it's interesting because we strongly believe that Galatians has already been written. Yeah. And so Romans kind of right, being written after it, you think, well, Paul knows the response to this. I mean, clearly this, the, the Jewish Christian um, people to whom Paul's contending, they have a response to this. And their response is this. Yeah, Abraham was given righteousness in Genesis 15, and then he went and got circumcised in Genesis 17. So if you Gentiles, if you want to be declared righteous, that's great. Have faith and then go get circumcised because that's what Abraham did. And like, actually, that's a really good argument. Paul's response, however, is, wait a minute. If we if we don't make circumcision a requirement, but just simply believing, then in verse 12, he says, then even both Jews and Gentiles may both enter in. Look at what he says. Verse 12, Abraham's then the father of the circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, that's the Jewish people, but who also fall in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Ah, there you go. So now he's the father of all who believe, verse 11, without being circumcised, and then verse 12, and the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but also who follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham. This is exactly where Paul goes in the book of Galatians also, right? And that is in Galatians 3, 28, he says, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And we often read Galatians 3, 28, but then we forget to read Galatians 3, 29, mm-hmm. where Paul says, and if you belong to Christ, mm-hmm. then you are Abraham's descendants heirs according to the promise. The point then is, if salvation were a result of circumcision, following the food laws and Sabbath keeping, uh, you know, these ideas of of Jewish identity markers uh, or works or works of the law, then it's only for the Jews. Now that means that Gentiles can come in, 
but they have to do these things. And it makes a class distinction. This is going to be Paul's big argument in the book of Galatians between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Well, you guys are kind of like in, but not really in all the way. Mm-hmm. And just kind of cut to Galatians really quickly. Paul's whole argument, and I think a significant argument, is the fact that the sign of the kingdom of God or the covenant, which is the presence of the Holy Spirit, was found in you guys before you got circumcised, huh? You guys experienced probably the charismatic gifts. You guys experienced the Holy Spirit before you got circumcised. Case closed, I win. Hmm. So the Holy Spirit is really actually significant for Paul's argumentation. Which is going to come it, up in Romans 8. I was going to say, we'll see it in Romans yeah. chapter 8. And it's, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Okay, so then the, the last section is uh, chapter 4, verse 13 through 15. Yeah. Paul asks the question of entrance based on Torah. So we're just dealt with circumcision now, right. but just about Torah in, in general. All right, so the question has been, in the book of Romans, how was Abraham our father? Or in what sense have we found Abraham to be our father? Was if by works, no, it wasn't by works because then we could boast and then God would owe us something. Instead, it's by faith. Oh, well, was it by circumcision? No, because that makes two classes of people. Look, Abraham was even a member of the covenant before he was even circumcised. Well, then the third question, was it by the Torah? And again, Torah means the law. And sometimes the word Torah can apply to the entirety of the Old Testament, but mm-hmm. most often it refers to the first five books, the, the law, the, the covenant itself. And Paul's answer is no, the promise was not through the law that God made the promise to Abraham. So look at what Paul says in Romans 4, verse 13. The promise to Abraham or to his descendants. Now, stop there. The word descendants here is the word seed. And that's why we had that discussion of Genesis and Romans 16 earlier. It's about the seed. The promise to Abraham was, oh, through your descendants or through your seed. Oh, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Yeah, and it's the seed of Abraham. And then it's Isaac and then it's Jacob ultimately leading to Jesus. So the promise to Abraham or to his seed that he would be heir of the world, what? Was not to the law, but to the righteousness of faith. And we're going to come back to that statement about the world here in a minute. Verse 14, if those who are of the law are heirs, then faith is made void and the promise is nullified. Again, if those who are who are following Torah, circumcision, Sabbath keeping, and food laws, these Jewish uh, identity markers. If that's the case, then that means there's faith is made void. There's, there's no place for faith. Verse 15, the, the law, however, brings about wrath. That's what it says, right? And that's going to be Paul's argument in Romans 5, 6, and 7. Uh, the law brings about wrath, and we got a problem there. Verse 16, for this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the, well, my translation says descendants, but the Greek word says seed. Mm-hmm. Not only to those who are of the law, meaning not only to those who are Jewish, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, a father of many nations, I have made you. I find it interesting because I grew up in this in, a, in this Baptist church that certainly believe that the Jewish people are God's chosen race and the promise to Abraham are still applied to them. And that someday there'll be a revival of the Jewish people right before the second coming of Jesus and kind of all that kind of stuff. Yet we also sang songs in church saying, Father Abraham had many sons mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I am one of them. Yeah, And so are yeah, you. It's like, um, wait a minute. 
if I'm one of Abraham's sons, then I'm part of Israel. So I just find that I just find that interesting. <laughs> That's you tipping your hat. Yeah. So like much of the emphasis that you've brought up, it's just in your own uh, scholarship and, and the books you've written. Um, this issue coming up here is it's that it's addressing the question, who are the people of God? Yes. Or, or how does one become a child of Abraham? I think that's the question. And the answer is, it's by faith. Now, I hate saying that a little bit if we leave it at that, because I think mm. that's been misunderstood uh, and abused. Oh, I just have to believe in Jesus. No, this faith is, of course, a genuine life-transforming faith that says, I'm going to eat from the tree of life because mm -hmm. God is the one who makes the rules. It's acknowledging God's sovereignty, going back to the Genesis 3 uh, or illustration that I used earlier. It's saying God is sovereign and not humanity is sovereign. God is mm -hmm. Lord, and it's his kingdom that's in charge. And I become a member of that kingdom by faith, by repentance, by denying myself, acknowledging that I follow the ways of the world before. I've made myself Lord. I've made my family Lord. I've made power Lord or whatever it might be, Lord. And now I recognize that Jesus alone is Lord. That's it. Mm -hmm. But the big deal about that is that means entrance into this kingdom is for anyone. And it doesn't matter what national or ethnicity a, per a person might be. Yeah. So this has huge implications, though, just even from a geopolitical yeah. uh, standpoint in, in the Middle East. And we've talked about this on the show before, especially as it relates to Christian nationalism and that sort of thing. But for many evangelicals, because there's been such a strong distinction of Israel and the rest of the world and you have to support israel at all times we've hung out in genesis 12 a lot and oftentimes miss genesis 12 is misquoted as saying those who bless israel will be blessed those who curse israel will be cursed where well, that's not what the phrase where that's not what the passage says um it's it's those who bless the offspring <laughs> and, and so if we allow paul to define the offspring as being jesus and those who are in there uh that you know changes that what do we do with issues of promised land because you can't yeah. not ask that question when you're studying something like romans yeah, uh, let me kind of piggyback on what you just commented there also, and that is, Jesus says, my my mother, my brother, and my sisters are those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. So I think what we're looking at then is, you know, as Paul's going to use the analogy in Romans chapter 11 by saying that believing Gentiles have been grafted into the tree, which the tree is Israel. That, that's fine. The tree is Abraham and his descendants. That's fine. The question then also becomes, well... And I think this is the question that Paul's asking. So let's ask that question first. Paul's asking the question about the Jewish people and saying, well, what about them? And the answer is going to be, well, sure, they were special. That's fine. God gave them the, the Torah. God gave them the scriptures. God gave them the oracles of God. God gave them these responsibilities and these privileges. However, he's not forgotten them. And we'll get into this in the later episodes. He's not forgotten them because Paul's answer is, I'm Jewish. It's clearly that like not all Jews are condemned or God forgot all the Jewish people. I'm Jewish. And I believe that you see Jewish people throughout history, which obviously is true, who have become Christians. And that's a sign of the fact that the Jewish people have not been totally excluded. Right, now, there's a question out there that we'll save for a future podcast. And that is, is there still a promise to the Jewish people and those people who are ethnically Jewish that they will ultimately be grafted back in? Like there's going to be this conversion, like all Israel will be saved, as it says in Romans 11, 26. And some say that all Israel will be saved means, oh, there's going to be this mass conversion of the Jewish people at the end of time. And we'll have Bach and, and Burge discuss that a little bit, and I'll give my opinion on the podcast episode before that. I think that all Israel will be saved is, well, the Jewish people are going to come in to Christ 
throughout the history of the church. But then there's one other thing, and that's this. God told Abraham, come to here, and I'm going to give you all these offspring, and I'm also going to give you this land. And so the question is, well, does the promises of land still apply? Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing then becomes this, and we'll get into this in Romans 8 in our next episode. In Romans 8, it says that we are heirs with Christ Jesus through the Spirit. Well, heirs of what? Mm-hmm. Well, the only thing that we can be inheriting is the land. I mean, that's the only covenant promise out there is, is land promises. And notice, and I mentioned this earlier as I read it, but I didn't comment on it. Romans 4, verse 13. It says, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants, which is the word seed, that he would be heir of the world was not to the law, but to the righteousness of faith. Now, the problem is God never promised Abraham that he'd be heir of the world. Mm-hmm. It never says that. It says that Abraham will have as many descendants as the stars of the sky and the grand descent of the seashore. But it only promised him the inheritance would be the land. And the land promises seem to be limited. Like it's it's this particular plot of land. And by the way, scholars, Old Testament and modern day scholars are not in agreement on what the, the boundaries of the land promises are. But nonetheless, there's these, there's these land promises. But Paul seems to simply say, oh, it's by the way, it's that you're the heir of the world. Now, the similar thing happens in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 6, he says, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Verse 2, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that may go well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Okay, now let me let me see if I can explain Romans 4.13 and Ephesians 6, 2 and 3. Ephesians 6, 2 and 3 uses this word gay, which can be translated as land or earth. So back in Matthew 5, Jesus says, blessed are the the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, technically, someone might argue, it actually says they will inherit the land. Okay, we got these land promises. And so there are some scholars, and I know some personally, that believe promise of land still out there because the word gay in Greek can mean land or earth. So in the Beatitudes, when Jesus says they will inherit the land, is it the land or is it the earth? In Ephesians 6, it's really clear. And that is, the word can mean land or earth, but he cannot be promising the church in Ephesus that you're going to inherit the land Mm -hmm. because they don't want that land. They live in Ephesus, and some of these guys are Gentiles. So they have no desire to inherit the land in Israel-Palestine, whatever that land might be called. So it has to be translated, they will inherit the earth. And so you immediately begin to see that, oh, land promises are now expanded. So again, they're not eliminated. They're not replaced. They're not done away with. They're fulfilled, but they're fulfilled by being expanded. And let me see if I can explain this a little bit further. This is why Romans 4.13 says, the promise to Abraham or to his seed or descendants, that he would be heir of the world. Now, the problem, as I mentioned a minute ago, is it never says that Abraham's going to be heir of the world. It always says he's going to be heir of the land. And I think Mm -hmm. what you see happening here then is the promise of land is being expanded. Now, let me see if I can clarify that one more point, and that's this. Jesus is the fulfillment. We'll see this in the book of Corinth and first and second Corinthians. All God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus. Luke 24, he was explaining everything in the scriptures about him. Not just like that verse, that verse, that verse, but the entire story was about Jesus. For example, in the gospel of John, Jesus is the bread of life. 
ah, the man in the wilderness was pointing us to Jesus. Jesus is the bread. Jesus is the light of the world. We start going through the list of things that Jesus is. Well, John 15, I'm the vine. You're the branches. Mm -hmm. So when we go to Romans 11 and it says, oh, there's this olive tree and the branches, some of them are cut off. That's Jewish people for their unbelief. And wild branches, Gentiles, were grafted back in. Well, John 15, Jesus says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Now, the vine, of course, is grape imagery, but it's still the same, the same idea. I'm the tree mm-hmm. and you are the branches. I'm the source of sustenance. Its meaning has fulfillment in me. And the best way to explain this, if I can go one more step here, and if I can't, well, just too bad. Here we go. The best way to explain this is in light of the temple. Jesus is the temple of God. We have no problem with that because he says it explicitly. John says it explicitly. Paul will say, you are the temple of God. Mm -hmm. And so what we're looking at is this. If we go back to Genesis 12 and say, why did God give Abraham this land or promise him this land and promise him these descendants? And the answer is because God was going to bless the nations through Abraham and the land would be the place from which he would do the blessing. And what that means is that the land is going to be where God's going to dwell. So Abraham, go back to Genesis. Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden. And now Abraham's getting called back in. There's this constant coming in, going out, coming in, going out, coming in, going out. Oh, you sin, I'm kicking you out. Oh, you come here. And then, oh, you sin, I'm kicking you out. So now, and that's kind of the, uh, ultimately the exile at the end of the book of, uh, at the end of the Old Testament. Now you see this coming back in with Jesus. But the land is where God's going to dwell. So Abraham, I'm going to give you this land because I'm going to dwell among you and among your people. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to bless you so much because of your faithfulness to, to the covenant that all the nations will see how great a God I am. And we've said this before. And the nations will come in and join them in this covenant. Well, they didn't do it. God kicks them out, sends them out. And then Jesus comes along and says, guess what? I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. But remember, the land is the place where God was going to dwell. And we discussed this in our study of the Gospel of John. Jesus is that place. He he is, we have beheld his glory, as the Gospel of John says. The place, the temple is Jesus. And the temple is not a building per se. It's the place of God's dwelling. And now, and that's why I think the Holy Spirit is so significant to understanding the New Testament. Now, through the Holy Spirit, you are the place of God's presence. And so am I. And so are our brothers that we interviewed in Russia. So are they. And so are the brothers and sisters in India and Nepal that I meet with on, uh, regularly on Zoom conference calls. And so are our brothers and sisters in, in China and Africa and you name it. Our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are filled with the Holy Spirit are the place of God's presence. Guess what? It's expanding throughout the world. Hmm. So the temple, the land, and the people are being expanded, not replaced. So Israel has not been replaced at all. It's the same tree. Or in the book of Revelation, of course, it's a woman. And that it's the same woman, and it's her offspring. It, and that's Israel originally. But now it's the one who does the will of my father in heaven is my father, my mother, my brother, and my sister. Ah, it's through Jesus. So I think 
that explains Romans 4.13 and Ephesians 6. I don't, did I answer your question? Does that make sense, Vin? Do you have any follow-up questions? Or, or I don't even know what I asked, but that was a good speech. I, I okay. would say that okay. I know that a lot of what you just talked about is stuff that you write about in your book, These Brothers of Mine. Is that the Reader's Digest version of that, or uh, yeah. do you I guess continue so. on that? Yeah, I, I would. And I would say this. I originally set out to write one book that became two. So if you read my book, Understanding the, the New Testament and the End Times, it kind of gives you the beginning of that mm. in which I'm discussing Jesus as the temple and the fulfillment of that. And the subtitle of that book is called Why It Matters. The second book, which became a second book, was the same project. Project It's called These Brothers of Mine. And the subtitle is A Biblical Theology of Land and Family in Response to Christian Zionism. And in that book is kind of what I just gave you the Reader's Digest version of. Yeah, land and family promises are fulfilled in Jesus. Mm -hmm. Great. These episodes is interesting. If people are familiar with studying these books of the Bible, they might say, okay, I'll listen to another talk on Romans and <laughs> we're going to a completely different area. So hopefully this is a, a little thought provoking, challenging in some ways. Yeah, we're just going to keep this going as we continue on through the book of Romans. And as we both alluded to some great interviews coming up Yeah, and um, yeah, this is just exciting talk. Yeah. It's going to get so much better, by the way, Romans five through eight, Romans eight is just, it's a gem. Mm -hmm. I think you might be aware of any. Uh, N.T. Wright, a few months ago, spent uh, three days in Dallas, Texas, lecturing on Romans 8. It was like mm -hmm. three days on one chapter. It's like, yeah, because the <laughs> chapter is like that good. Uh, yeah. We're going to do it in a little less than three days, just so you know. It's like two and a half. All right, everyone. Hope you appreciate it. Enjoy it. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.